1 Corinthians 4. If you need a Bible, there should be a black, hard-bound Bible close by in the pews. 1 Corinthians 4 is on page 953 of that Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And uh, we will read the entire chapter before we begin, as we begin. First Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 1, this is what the Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings." And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, when slandered we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Let's pray.
speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Are you proud? Do you fear yourself, feel yourself to be farther along than probably most others, a little better than most others, maybe just a little above others, especially those people? You know, those people who don't think like you? You know, those people on the other side of that aisle? Now, many people, if you were to ask questions like this directly, they would just say, well, I, I don't think I'm proud. Well, let me ask you some questions. Do you tend to be critical of others? Maybe how they look, what they wear, how they act, how they work. When people praise you, you cling to their words, prize them, tuck them away and pull them out so that you might see them again when you're feeling kind of down. When people criticize you, do you cling to their words, crushed by their thoughts of you, silently arguing back at them in your mind? Boy, are you wrong about me. Do you get frustrated when people don't thank you for something that you've done? Do you get sad, maybe even depressed, when others excel in school, at work, in sports, and you are average? Do you bring up your faults with other people in such a way that you're hoping they will correct you? I look terrible today. I'm a really bad father. I'm no good at this job. How do you respond when a friend or a spouse or a parent offers correction on some behavior or brings something up that may actually be a problem for you to see and address? How do you respond when someone tries to correct the way you think about something? When you're in a prayer group, do you avoid sharing your weaknesses and failures because of how others may think about you if they hear that? How do you respond to suffering? Do you feel like you don't deserve it? I met a man at a doctor's office once. I probably have told this before, but I've long since stopped caring whether I've told you things in the past. <laughs> I met a man in the doctor's office and he asked me how I was doing and I said, better than I deserve. How are you doing? And he said, not as good as I deserve. And he proceeded to tell me about the Parkinson's that he was dealing with and the other things that he was dealing with and how he didn't deserve all of that. I wonder if that would be you. 
maybe not out loud to a stranger in a doctor's office, but some way tucked away in the back of your mind. I don't deserve to suffer like this. I don't deserve to be treated like this. I don't deserve this. Those questions can reveal what C.S. Lewis calls the great sin. He writes, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. It is the vice of pride, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. You see, we tend to see pride very clearly in others, don't we? But we don't see it as clearly in ourselves. And questions like this can be helpful because if you are a Christian in particular, you need to see your pride so that you can deal rightly with your pride. Why? Because pride is part of the way of the world. Pride is part of the wisdom of the world. When John tells people not to love the things of the world, what does he say they are? How does he break it down? The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life. Pride is part of worldly wisdom. And Paul's already told us in this letter that that worldly wisdom isn't Christian wisdom at all. Chapter 3, verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. And yet here are the Corinthians. They love the world's wisdom. They love the world's ways. And one of the ways that that shows up, one of the pieces of evidence, is their pride. The pride that divides them. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. Well, take a look over here. I follow Christ. And here in chapter 4, Paul takes aim at Corinthian pride, and his message is simple. Repent of your pride. That's what everything is driving at. It's simple. And yet he's going to take a whole chapter to say it. He could write one sentence. But he wants to drive it home because it's that important. Repent of your pride. Turn away from it. Stop it. Cut it out. Humble yourselves. And so as the chapter progresses, we see a few things that actually call for repentance. First is that godly examples call for repentance. Godly examples call for repentance. Let me show you why I say that. Look at verse 6. Okay, so that at the very beginning you saw, Paul says, this is how you ought to think about us. And he talks about himself and Apollos for a minute. But then in verse 6 he says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. 
Paul uses himself and Apollos as examples at the beginning of this chapter on purpose so that they'll live lives according to this little motto. It's very strange in the original language, but this is the phrase. This is the big motto on the banner. Not beyond what is written. That's how they live. I mean, that'd be a good motto for a church, wouldn't it? Not beyond what is written. One man said, here's another way to say it. Just keep your finger on the text. I mean, he's already quoted Scripture, but I don't think he's limiting not beyond what is written to the things he's already quoted. I think it actually expands out to all of the Bible, all of the Bible which would condemn pride, all of the Bible which exalts God and puts man in his place. Not beyond what is written, but then also in that same verse, so that this puffed up way of life will be put to an end. The way that's dividing them, that's, that's making them divide against one another. It makes me favor this guy over that guy. It's actually pride that's behind that. Because I can see clearly who the best guy is. I've got the wisdom to see it. You, you, the rest of you people, you're outside your minds. You got to be in the Apollos camp. So Paul wants the Corinthians to take a good look at him and Apollos so that they'll repent. Now, he's already said they're nobodies. You remember that? Up in chapter 3, in case you weren't here, look up in chapter 3, verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. And then in verse 7, already saying that he plants and Apollos waters, he says the guy who plants and the guy who waters are nothing. But even though they're not extraordinary, they are examples. They are godly examples. They are examples of humility. Look at verses 1 and 2 in chapter 4. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. They're not big shots. They're not power brokers. They're servants. They're stewards. Now, we've seen that word servants. We saw it last week, but the word from last week and the word from this week are two different words. The word servants up in chapter 3, verse 5, is, remember, is a table waiter. But this is not that. This word servant is a slave. A slave that would be sitting down on the bottom part of a ship and pulling the oar to row the ship forward. This nameless, invisible position. Paul and Apollos preach, yes, they teach, yes, they encourage, yes, they pray, yes. But those are just the oars that they pull to move God's kingdom ship, his church, forward. There are nobodies sitting below deck. And then he says, you could think of them as stewards, Household managers, these were often, again, slaves in charge of other slaves, entrusted with authority to make sure that a household ran well, the finances ran well. You know, we ordered enough bread for dinner. We, we you know, we're taking care of the landscaping, all these kinds of things. Back when uh, Susan was recovering from her, uh, you know, she broke her ankle and all these things, and she was recovering from surgery and couldn't get out of bed, and she and I ended up watching um, 
uh, Downton Abbey, all right? And if you've seen it, then Mr. Carson in Downton Abbey is a butler. He's a steward. He's the guy that runs all the other servants to make sure that the household runs well. In fact, he does it with such passion and such authority, you would think that house is his, but it's not. And Paul and Apollos are basically butlers. They care for the church with so much passion, with the authority given to them, that you'd think it's their church. But it's not. It's the Lord's church. It's not about them at all. Their only job as stewards is to be faithful. They don't get invited to red carpet events. The spotlight never finds them. Nobody wants a sound bite from a servant or a steward about anything. They live, they serve, and they die in the shadows. And they're all right with that. That's just that's the spot that God has given them in his kingdom. They're humble. They're examples of humility. They're also examples of godly fear. Now, when I say fear, I want to be sure that we're clear that we're not talking about being afraid of the dark or afraid of spiders or afraid of heights or afraid of public speaking or anything like that. Uh, I think it was Jerry Seinfeld who once said that the number one fear that people have uh, is public speaking. The number two fear is death. So if they were at a funeral, they'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. <laughs> but the kind of fear that we're talking about here is a kind of fear that shows reverence to someone else, a fear that shows respect, a fear that shows admiration, a fear that holds another person in high regard, not wanting to disappoint them, not wanting to fail them. And in the Bible, there are basically only two categories of this kind of fear. There's fear of man and fear of God. And when it comes to fear of man, Proverbs 29 says, the fear of man lays a snare. This is where you live your life for the opinions of others, for the approval of others. Why are they looking at me? Why are they talking about me? What does my boss think of me? What does my neighbor think of me? How do my children think my parenting is going? Fear of man is a dangerous way of life. It's a trap. And it's particularly dangerous in ministry. And yet, here's what Paul says, verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Uh, in fact, literally, that means any human day. He's already talked about the last day of the Lord. And now he's, it's like this little play on words. He's saying, e even if you have your own last day, you know, uh, courtroom for me. It's, it's, it's no big thing for me. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul doesn't fear how other people are going to evaluate his ministry. Their opinion is not the opinion. 
But he goes on to say his own opinion is not the opinion. It actually doesn't matter if he feels good about whether he's doing a good job. It doesn't matter whether I feel good about whether I'm doing a good job. The only thing that matters is what the Lord says. And he says the Lord doesn't come along each day and say, well, that was a good day. Let's have another one. Well, that's a good day. Let's have another one. What does he say? That's before the time. There is one time that the Lord's judgment on uh, ministry, on service will come, and that is on the last day, not on today, not on tomorrow. You may have a regular evaluations at work, but there's only one evaluation of the life. Just because you feel peace in your heart about how you're living doesn't mean you're living right. You have to be very wary of such things. He says God's opinion is the opinion, the, the opinion. Paul fears God. He reveres God. He holds God's opinion on the last day higher than any other opinion on any other day. All the other voices will fade. Only God's will remain on that day. And this godly fear is meant to be an example for the Corinthians and for us. Look, here's the reality. When a pastor or a church or a Christian is caught in fear of man, they will be likely to compromise in doctrine, compromise in morality, do whatever it takes just to hear others say that they approve of us. We will conform the, 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 the message that we preach to the values of the world in order for us to hear the world say, we approve of your Christianity. Friend, that is exactly what's happening today. And in places where 10, 15 years ago, you would have never thought it'll happen there. And yet there it is. You see, Paul and Apollos are examples of humility and godly fear, and this should confront and convict pride. Now, the example of humility is kind of obvious, isn't it? Because humility is the opposite of uh, pride. But the fact of the matter is, is that fear of man is also pride. Because when I want the approval of others, when I want you to think well of me, who ultimately am I thinking about? Me. When I want you to approve of me, I'm thinking about me. When I want you to say good things about me, I'm thinking of me. Me. Esteem me. Lift me up. And Paul says that's not how we live. It's a very small thing to to hear others. You know, Jesus will say, if you, if, if you do all your righteous things and you preach and you give and you, and you pray and you fast and you do all that stuff so that you can get approval from others, well, once you get the approval of others, that's it. There's no more approval for you. That's all the applause you'll get. When that applause dies down, it's dead. And you'll live your whole life for the next round of applause the next pat on the back, the next attaboy. And so their examples should bring that. I mean, this is part of the way God uses examples in our lives, isn't it? 
When we see examples of godliness in the lives of others where we have failed, it should convict us. When we see the instinct to pray in someone else where we have neglected prayer. When we see gentleness in correcting children where we have been harsh. When we see zeal to share the gospel where we've cowered in fear. When we see generosity where we have been stingy. Where we see humility and godly fear. And we've been proud. We should hear the call to repent. Godly examples call for repentance. Also, sharp rebukes call for repentance. What we have in verses 7 to 13 is a sharp rebuke from Paul, which even includes sarcasm. And in verse 14, he says that this rebuke is admonition. He is admonishing them. And that's not a word we use, uh, admonish. So what does that mean? Well, what it means is that he is setting out the problem in front of them as clearly as he knows how so that they will see it and understand it and seek to change. This word admonish is at the heart of what we do in biblical counseling, helping us all to see problems God's way and to solve problems God's way, to lay out everything so that it can be seen and so change can come. And what Paul does here in his admonishing and his rebuking is that he shows them their pride in a couple of places so they'll see how bad it is, how serious it is, how urgent it is that they repent. So we hear a rebuke of self-sufficiency. So right after he, he lays out all these examples in 1 to 5, and then he says why he does it in verse 6, he, has, he says this in verse 7, who sees anything different in you? What makes you special? What sets you apart from every other Christian? Really? What do you think the implied answer is? Nothing. Nobody sees anything different in us. The next question he asks also gets a nothing. What do you have that you did not receive? And so having walked them along this, then he asks the question that digs in. If then you have received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That's the question that digs into the soul. If everything's a gift, friends, if your life is a gift, if your breath is a gift, if your existence is a gift, if your salvation is a gift, if the spirit living within you is a gift, if the skills that you have to serve and teach and help others in the church are gifts, if all these are gifts, how dare we act as if it's all about us, as if we're really the gift? That is self-sufficiency, plain and simple. Then Paul takes it to the next level. This is where the sarcasm comes in verse 8. I hope you heard it in the way that I read it. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. It sounds like he's agreeing with them, doesn't it? They like nothing. They're kings. 
You, look, this is your world. We're just living in it. Right? This is sarcasm 101. Sadly, if you need lessons, I can help you. But these folks are self-sufficient. They are arrogant. They are puffed up to the point of exploding. They're proud. It's the same kind of self-sufficiency that you see in another church in the New Testament. In Laodicea. Jesus rebukes that church for the same thing. Revelation 3. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. But friends, that spirit's not just in Laodicea. And it's not just in Corinth. It could very well be alive and well in this room, in your heart. But those who would say such things, even in their own head, are deceived by what they see in the mirror. Because in truth, it's a funhouse mirror, it's not a realistic mirror, it's a distorted view of self where I look bigger and better than I actually am. But it's a view I really like. And a view I really hold on to. It sees me as big, even though it makes God look small. It may, makes me look very important, even though it ends up making God look less important. And so Paul rebukes them for it, a rebuke of their self-sufficiency. And then we see a rebuke of their superiority. What happens next should break their hearts. It should bring them to their knees in repentance. Look what he descri- how he describes their so-called superiority beginning in verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. In other words, their sense of superiority is out of step with the apostolic way of life. It doesn't fit with how the apostles live. The Corinthians believe they've got it all. Wisdom, strength, honor. And the apostles? Well, they seem to look foolish and weak. And... Their reputation in town is not good at all. But Paul doesn't leave it there. He says, we go, we go without basic necessities. Food, drink, clothing, shelter. We're spit on. We're harassed. We're beaten. We work our fingers to the bone, which in that culture was a demeaning way to live. The apostles, verse 9, are a spectacle. Now, spectacle is a word 
that was used to talk about those who are paraded through the streets as prisoners of war and slaves as they are walked to the Colosseum to be thrown to the lions. That's the stage that they have. The stage of abuse, the stage of pain, the stage where the guillotine blade is hanging above their head and they don't know when it's coming down. They've been sentenced to death. That's what the apostles are. They're disrespected. They're degraded. They're hated. Angels can see it. Do you see that? Verse 9. Angels can see it. Other people can see it. The whole world can see it. But you Corinthians act as if all of that is beneath you. Like you've found a better Christianity, a strong Christianity, an honorable Christianity, a wiser Christianity, a let's take back Greece for God Christianity. Oh, dear friend, there is no better Christianity. The circumstances of the world do not determine whether our Christianity is better or worse. Paul is not calling the Corinthians to turn the world around, but to turn themselves around. You see, proud Christianity is an oxymoron. It's like talking about a square circle or an elderly baby. Proud Christianity is no Christianity at all. And that should sting. But the greatest sting is actually yet to come. Keep going in verse 12. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. The scum of the world and the refuse of all things. If your kids have ever been playing in the mud and then you take them in and you put them into the bath, right, and you clean them up, and then you take out the clean child, what's left in the bathtub is the scum. There's no baby in that bath water. Just scum and refuse. Stuff you just throw away. But it's interesting, when all these awful things happen, you know what pride would do? Pride, when you are reviled, you puff out and you come right back at them, right? When you're persecuted, I don't deserve this, I'm going to squirm out of it. When you're slandered, I'll just slander you back. I've got such a sharp tongue, you won't even know what's coming. But that's not what he says. He doesn't respond in, as you'd say, a Corinthian way. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. This is the apostles, but I want you to take a second and think about this. Who is it? Who else do you know who blesses those who revile him? 
Who is it when he is persecuted does not call 10,000 angels to come to his defense, but endures? Who is it that when he is slandered, says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? The Corinthians' problem is much bigger than being out of step with the apostles. They're out of step with Jesus. That should wake them up. That should wake us up. Because we shouldn't think that this kind of pride is limited to first century Corinth. It's alive and well and prevalent in 21st century Indianapolis. Look, let me just give you examples. When other people offer to help you because they can see that you're struggling in one way or another, do you tend to refuse and say, no, 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 I'll be fine, I'll be fine, that's fine? Are you generally a thankful person for the good things that you have, or do you feel like, I've worked hard for this, I deserve it? When a family that you know seems to have it all together... But then they're struggling. The marriage is struggling. The wayward child is wayward and more wayward. In the back of your mind, do you feel a little better about your family at that point? When you hear of a pastor's moral failure or another church's departure from orthodoxy, do you feel a sense of pride in our congregation? Thank you, Lord, that we are not like other churches. Pride takes many forms, doesn't it? It didn't die in the first century, but it's a stealthy enemy. And when you spot it, when you see it, we need to remember what Paul just made very clear to the Corinthians. When we see it, we are not simply out of step with the apostles. We are not simply out of step with other faithful Christians. We are out of step with Jesus Christ when we are proud. And the sharp rebuke points to that and says, repent. Godly examples call for repentance. Sharp rebukes call for repentance. And lastly, fatherly love calls for repentance. Paul doesn't want them to be drowning in an ocean of shame. He's admonished them so they will reach out for the life preserver of repentance. Listen to verse four, beginning in verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. Now, again, you're not going to see the word repent here, but you see the idea. They have been proud, pride that has led to division. And so what does Paul call them to do? Instead of all that, be imitators of me. Be a servant like me, a nameless nobody who's just rowing the ship of God's church. 
Be a steward like me, knowing that nothing you do and nothing you build belongs to you. It only belongs to God. Be a spectacle like me. Take on a life at odds with the world where last place is a pretty good place to be because that's where Jesus was when he went to the cross. He was a spectacle. He was sentenced to death. He was last place in the world's eyes. So be imitators of me as I imitate Jesus. Why? Because he's their spiritual father. And humanly speaking, they owe their church's life to him. And then he finishes by saying this, basically. Your father is on his way. Verse 18, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? You see, there are all kinds of people in Corinth jawing about their greatness, jawing about their power. And Paul's saying, we'll see what kind of spiritual power is actually there when I come. Your father is on his way. Those six words, your father is on his way, those bring comfort and joy for children in the home who are in line, don't they? Dad's coming. Can't wait to see him. And those words cause alarm when children are disobedient and disorderly. We got to clean up this mess. We got to hide that broken lamp. We got to put some makeup on that black eye because dad's on his way. But here's the thing the children who are repentant and broken in sin and weeping and want to change. Father is on his way, but not with a rod of discipline, with mercy and gentleness. And for the children who are hard and won't budge and hold their ground and, and uh, who talk as if they don't need to listen to anybody, especially you, discipline awaits them. And so Paul says, what will it be? Discipline or gentleness? Some of you have been there with your own children. Or more than anything else, you just want to see them broken about their sin. Turning. Just, just stop digging in your heels. And this is Paul pleading with this church... What will it be, discipline or gentleness? The answer lies in whether you are prepared to repent. This is how the Father comes to us. He speaks to us in His Word. He reminds us of what we should be, shows us what we're not, calls us to repent, convicts us by the Spirit. And if we're broken, what do we find? Mercy. There is great and grace is free. Pardon there is multiplied to me. We find that his arms are open with mercy. But if we will not, we find that his hand is ready 
with discipline. Discipline rooted in his love for us. Love that doesn't want us to wander around anymore. Doesn't want us off track. Love that wants us back. Love that, that, that knows that discipline is the only way. That seeing pain connected with this is the only way they're going to turn. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. He disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. So this call for repentance comes through godly examples and sharp rebukes and fatherly love. All to say this, repent of your pride. Stop thinking that you getting what you want when you want is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Stop thinking that you're a gift to everybody else. Don't you see? To exalt yourself like this is to kick God out of his glory and say it's yours. Stop. Turn back. You cannot be like that. And the question in, in, in verse 21, what, what do you wish? Discipline or gentleness. That question doesn't just hang at the end of chapter 4. That hangs through the rest of the letter. Because Paul is going to bring up problem after problem after problem. And the question is the same. Will you repent or not? It's a daily question for us as Christians as we see sin in our relationships, in our work life, in our view of money, in our thought life, in our anger, in our response to others when they sin against us. The question is, will we repent or not? And the only answer, the only Christian answer is yes. Yes, I will. Have mercy on me, a sinner. But dear friend, you may not be a Christian, and yet that is the same question that hangs in the air for you. The Bible reveals to us that our lives are out of line with God. Our sin has separated us from God, and as we are, we have no hope when we meet God at the end of this life. And I wonder if that stings if it stings to know that your life is out of line with God, if it stings to know you are separated from God, if it stings to know you have no hope and I have no hope on our own when we meet God, it should sting. And if it stings, keep listening because the Bible also reveals that there is mercy and forgiveness and eternal life and hope because Jesus Christ has died and been raised again and all those who trust in him will receive forgiveness and pardon and hope and adoption into his family and eternal life. But here's the deal. You cannot hold on to your sin and your Savior at the same time. You have got to let go of one. Which one will it be? Will you let go of your sin and find salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or will you let go of the Savior? Knowing you will face the rod of eternal punishment 
from the Lord. Will you repent? What do you wish? Let's pray. Our Father, we come to your word and from it receive a variety of things from a variety of places. Help in trials and hope in suffering. And here we find your voice calling to us to repent, repent of our pride. To turn from self, turn our eyes from ourself, turn our attention from ourself, and turn it all to you, to our Lord Jesus Christ. And those of us who are Christians know that we spent years in such vanity and such pride, not caring about our Lord Jesus who had died for us. And yet, in your kindness, you showed us how wrong we were, how separated we were, how hopeless we were, and you showed us our Savior. Would you do that again today for those who don't know Jesus? Help them to see clearly that we cannot hold on to our sin and to our Savior, that we must let go of one. Cause us to repent, O Lord. Press your word into our hearts. Call to mind examples. Rebuke us through its truth. Show us your fatherly love and bring us to repentance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.